Welcome back to another episode of The Growth Guide. Today, we're excited to have Mark Devine on the show. Mark is an entrepreneur, New York Times best-selling author, and one of the world's top leadership and coaching experts. After a successful 20-year career as a Navy SEAL, Mark was hired by the Navy to create a coaching and leadership program for the SEALs. He joined us today to discuss his book, The Way of the SEAL, Think Like an Elite Warrior to Lead and Succeed. Mark discusses principles such as attention control, concentration, and the power of mindful awareness, providing valuable insights on how these practices can transform your life. Get ready for an inspiring conversation filled with wisdom and practical tools for personal growth on this episode. Mark, welcome to the Growth Guide podcast. For our listeners who may not know you, can you provide them with a Coles Notes version of your history? And feel free to talk about your pivot from being a CPA, which is something I'm also doing at this stage of my All life, right. much later than you did. That's awesome. Yeah, that's kind of a fun place to start. Unlikely CPA actually was much more comfortable and had a lot more fun in the Navy SEALs, if you can imagine that. But I'm from upstate New York, small town, and I uh, went to a place, a university up there called Colgate University, which is considered lower Ivy. So pretty good school and athletic focus. So I was a competitive swimmer and a rower there and a, a triathlete. I grew up spending a lot of time outside and just loved, you know, that kind of outdoor lifestyle, much like you Canadians in the British Columbia and or up in your area. And especially when I grew up in the sixties and seventies and eighties, we didn't have a lot of distraction and internet and what happens today. So, you know, I really enjoyed spending time outside and spent a lot of time with my sports. Uh, when I got, um, was finishing up Colgate, my, all my peers were heading down to New York to get jobs. I was actually groomed to kind of come back to the family business, which is in upstate New York. I've been around for over a hundred years, but I saw that the jobs these guys were getting and it looked, you know, kind of fancy, right? You know, they're suit and tie and they're making a lot of money. So I thought, Hey, I wonder if I could do that. And so I uh, took a flyer and put some applications in with some of the same companies and I got picked up by, even though I was like a 2.8 and all these companies were hiring, you know, you know, Harvard MBA types. But uh, someone saw something in me, a, a company called uh, Coopers and Librand, which became PricewaterhouseCoopers. You're familiar with them. And it was a program called the Masters of Science and Accounting Program as a cohort. So there were like six or seven universities, seven of the big eight firms. Back then, there were eight of the big accounting firms participated. And so we, we went to NYU as a cohort to get our Masters of Accounting because we were all liberal arts graduates. None of us had an accounting undergrad because Colgate didn't even have an undergrad program. So their thinking was, hey, we're going we're gonna to hire undergrads who are liberal arts students will send them to get their master's accounting. That'll qualify them to become certified public accountants if they pass the exam. Then what we'll have is a potential for a more well-rounded partner who's not just a technician. And uh, ironically, it did work. Like one of my best friends from Colgate came into the program with me. He was at Ernst & Young, which was actually Ernst & Winnie at the time. And now he's global chairman and CEO of Ernst & Young. His name is Carmen oh, wow. Sibio. Yeah, so, okay. so prove their point, but he may have been one of like 10 of the 75 who, who stuck around. Anyways, I ended up getting my MBA in finance, uh, got my CPA exam. But the most uh, significant thing that happened to me during that four years while I was working for Coopers and then I switched over to Arthur Anderson was uh, early, like within months of me getting to New York, I was, there was something unique about the way I grew up, or maybe it was just my spirit that said that I, I wouldn't ever stop training. I just felt like I was a lifetime trainer, athlete, warrior. I didn't really know what it was. I now know that it was my connection to the developmental science of yoga. Like I think that in a prior lifetime, I, obviously I was a yogi because that developmental path is, you know, it takes a thousand lifetimes to find yoga. And yoga is a path of, you know, and I know this is probably jumping right into this. People are going like, wait, where are you going with this? It's the way that I understand it. And it's not the stretchy, bendy studio yoga that we're talking about. It's the science of total development of the human body, mind, spirit system, which requires deep dedication to physical and mental health and optimizing the mind to unlock the vast potential. So I didn't recognize that wholeness, but it drew me to martial arts when I got to New York. And I was like, because I was running in the morning and I was going to gym at lunchtime when all my peers were going to get in their high carb lunch. And I was trying to find something to do in between my 
work and school at night, which was at, down at the World Trade Center, NYU. And so I had a two and a half hour block and I was thinking, what can I do? What can I do? I'm going to train. And I stumbled across a martial arts studio and it turns out the grandmaster was a Zen master. And Zen is yoga. It's the same thing. Zen uh, was the Japanese version of Chan, which is a Chinese version of concentration training of Dharana, which came from the ancient yoga traditions of India and Tibet. And so I started uh, practicing Zen at 21 years old, along with the martial arts and, and also continuing my athleticism as a triathlete. And all while I was getting my MBA and CPA. So I was a little busy during those years. <laughs> you imagine that? Quote? I like it. I know. It was the Zen, though, that changed, that really had the transformative effect. Now, we know a little bit now about neuroplasticity and stage development of human beings and how, especially in, in the earlier ages, like your brain isn't fully developed until mid to late 20s. And furthermore, your brain can develop forever. It never stops developing unless you stop developing it. And, but what is development? In the West, we've always looked at it just as academic or skill development, whereas the Eastern models like Zen and yoga were about consciousness development, like expanding your capacity to perceive more, to have broader perspectives, to open the, the heart mind, to open the gut or the biome mind, to be able to use these deeply empathic and intuitive skills uh, for your decision-making. And also insight or direct perceiving information that you just is not cognized in the normal rational linear way that, that the Western training of the mind would have you believe is the only way that thinking accrues. So Zen started to open me up and I started having these major uh, like shifts in perspective. And I started to see that this story that I was living that had brought me here to New York to become a CPA, MBA, to get, make a lot of money, and then maybe someday go back and transform the family business and take it public. All that was a story that was uh, fed me. It was, it was part of my construct. It was all a mental construct that I had bought into lock, stock, and barrel. And by sitting there and developing the powers of concentration that Zen accrues over time, and then also opening up into this mindful awareness space where I could, I could begin to watch my thinking without being engaged in it. And you start to see patterns and you start to see what, you know, what's real in your life and what's not real. And I started to have this deep sense that I had set myself down a path that wasn't right for me. It was the conditioned path of my childhood and my family and even my culture and even my college. And so I started to ask better questions and started to wonder, like, if not that, then what? If that's not who I am, then who am I? And so I would go uh, ponder these pretty deep questions of self-awareness and kind of barreling into an existential crisis at 22 years old, you know, like my, I had a midlife crisis at 22. I'm like, oh, holy shit, like I'm heading down the wrong road really fast. And as my meditation matured, I was able to, without trying, or, or I should say it this way, when the trying stopped, I would find myself in a deep state of just pure nothingness. You know, it wasn't experience per se. It was just completely here, not checked out, radically aware, but not thinking. The Japanese call that mu, M-U, no mind. It doesn't mean you're unconscious. It just means you're there, but you're not actively thinking. You're perceiving. And in those moments of just directly perceiving, or what I call the field of awareness, I started to experience sensations and imagery. And they were all of like what I would call a warrior type, a warrior archetype. I started to feel like I was a warrior. I started to see imagery of me of me being a warrior. Now, this could be like just fantasy or it could have been a past life imagery or it could have been a future. I don't know. But I started to get the sense that I was meant to be a warrior. And so I started thinking about that. I was like, okay, so Navy SEAL or not Navy SEAL, but CPA, is that a warrior? And I was like, no, nah, that doesn't feel like a warrior to me. I mean, it could be, as you know, you could like, there's certain individuals that are like warriors as CPAs, but I didn't perceive it that way. So I started asking if I'm meant to be a warrior, how could I be a warrior? What would that look like? And this is where I learned about synchronicity and it reinforced certain other things that had happened in my life already. Because as soon as I started to ask that question, I was literally steered to a Navy recruiting office while I was walking home from work one day. I walked past this Navy recruiting office and suddenly I'm staring at this poster that said, be someone special and it had Navy SEALs doing really cool shit. 
I didn't say anything about the Navy SEALs, just guys jumping out of airplanes and free falling. And I had this little mini submarine, you know, guys locking out of this mini submarine in the night and a little sniper in his hide site. And I just sat transfixed and I just knew that was it. I was like, that is it. That's me. Like that's me in that poster. So that's, a, you asked for a short story, cliff note version. That's a long version. I decided to become a Navy SEAL midway through my MBA CPA journey in New York. And it took about two years, right, to actually get into the SEALs after Officer Canada School. So in November of 1989, after that process, I finished up my MBA. I, I literally got my CPA certificate in the mail. I tested and passed my first degree, showed on black belt test, and I left it all behind, went to Officer Canada School. And then I went to BUDS in April of 1990 and graduated as honor man number one in my class. Never looked back. There's a lot to chew on in there. One of the things that you said that I th will be very powerful for the listener is when you said you started to be able to see your thoughts and not identify with them, which is a great mental tool for people to be able to tell or bring into their life to add to their toolkit. What does that look like for you? And, and how do you help people? be able to stop and say, hey, let's look at your thoughts that are happening yeah. and only give permission to those ones that are real, not everything that's coming in. Sure. And you have an acronym for this, I believe, as well. I do, yeah. The direct method. The direct, I direct, in, that's from the way of the seal, that's right. There's a simpler one, but first let me talk about it. It is both a tool as well as a really important developmental stage or attribute. Right, that accrues to anyone who embarks upon this type of mental development. If you don't develop the skill to be able to stand off from your thoughts and emotions, then you're always going to be caught up in them. You may have the metacognitive ability to, through journaling or planning, to over time to see how your thinking and actions are kind of have got you into a situation. And that's an important skill as well. But I'm talking about in real time. While the thoughts and emotions are arising, if you're not actively constructing those thoughts, they are a pattern and that pattern can get triggered. And, uh, you know, they, they claim we have 60,000 to 100,000 of these thought patterns every day. And the default mode, which is why they call it the default mode network, is for these just to play out. Thoughts just occur to you. And then the microsecond they occur, they slip into memory and you take ownership of it. And you say, oh, I had that thought. The reality is these thoughts are just running through your head. And so it's really crucial to develop the capacity to be the observer, to witness them. So with that direct process, I say first, you know, step yourself, the, the way I teach this is in your mind's eye, using visualization first, you literally like create a, a partition of your mind, like a hard drive, you partition the hard drive in the left and right hemispheres. And you walk, you have a mental image of yourself as the observer or I called it the sentinel. Remember that in the book, The Way of the Seal? As you walk yourself over and you set up shop in the right hemisphere of your mind. This is all, again, in your mental imagery work. And you set up shop like either a, as a sniper or just an observer with a spotter scope or just sitting on a chair watching. And you're looking over at Lefty, Lefty being the, the rational analyzer, thinker, you know, where most a lot of these thoughts are coming from or being perceived, cognized, the cognized self. And you do this first in a practice setting, meaning like you do it as part of your meditation, morning meditation. And, and I have a whole uh, continuum of practice that I teach that starts with arousal control, then goes to tension control and concentration, and then into this mindful awareness where you set up this uh, witness. And over time, though, it becomes a real-time practice with you wherever you are. Like you can use it as a moment to interdict, like something's going wrong, pause, breathe, witness what's going on, and then redirect your uh, thoughts to something more productive away from the destructive patterns and obliterate that. And then eventually, as you get really effective at this, then the witness comes online full-time and you are always in a standoff mode from thoughts and emotions. So you're never getting engaged in them and you can let what doesn't serve you just dissipate or you can forcefully eject it and you can then reinforce what's positive and, and necessary and or choose something else, right? So it's a really powerful form of attention control and also willfully directing your mind where it needs to go based upon your circumstances or situation. This has both obviously short-term immediate like crisis response uh, benefit and also long-term 
life trajectory. You know, if you're 1% off, you're going to end up in the wrong city type stuff. So you're always able to course correct because you're always watching. Is this the right action? It, does this thing that's happening to me move me closer to my future, my desired future or further away and course correcting? And it becomes kind of a real-time day-to-day thing. It takes a little bit of time to develop the skill, but it's incredibly valuable, both from a practical, tactical perspective, but also it develops in you a great sense of confidence that you can control what you need to control, which is your response to the world, to other people, and also to your own conditioning. And most people are out of control, they're reactive, and, and the conditioning that they've been trained with in their life through their family of origin and through schools and culture itself leads them to be always in reactionary mode, always kind of on this tumultuous roller coaster of swinging wildly between you know pain and pleasure and fear and happiness. It's as Viktor Frankl said, it gives us that space between stimulus and response. That's right. It puts us in control of what we do versus our mind controlling us in our lives. In one of the beautiful stories that you shared there, and talk about synchronicity, I wrote about this in my newsletter last week, having not read the book yet, and so two wolves story. Do you want to share a little bit about that? How you talk to people about how to use that in their lives, which is what I wrote about last week. Absolutely. So the wolf is very potent animal. And for me, it's very powerful uh, animal in my life because my first pet was a full wolf. Well, actually half wolf, half Malamute. White, beautiful white, blue eyed dog. And, And she was with me for the first 17 years of my life amazing dog. And later on, when I wrote Unbeatable Mind, this theme of the wolves kept coming to me. And even my training at Seal Fit, I would, you know, let me, let me say it this way. When I developed Seal Fit and I started to develop these principles that I wrote about in the way of the seal and then also Unbeatable Mind, I drew a lot of the training from my experiences with Zen and then later with the, you know, deep yoga practice in Tibetan uh, meditation, Zajin meditation. So basically, Eastern practices of breathing and visualization and mindfulness and concentration and non-dual awareness and all these things and trying and trying and trying so many different things and just discarding what didn't feel right or was foofy and just finding what worked for me. And all of that I was doing just for myself. But then when I started to transition away from being a Navy SEAL as a warrior and I started to feel the archetypal urge to be a warrior teacher and, and scholar even. I decided, well, these are things, these are skills that I'd like to teach to other warriors because it'll make them better. Like it had an extraordinary effect on me. Like it made me honor man in my class and a phenomenal leader because I was more aware and I had greater situational awareness and I was super calm under pressure. All these skills that were really valuable for Navy SEALs, yet they weren't teaching them. And so I said, I want to teach these to my Navy SEAL compatriots and, and future warriors. So that's where SEALFIT was born. So when I started to teach, I originally was using some of the language and cultural context that I learned the skills. And these Navy SEAL candidates and other military operators who were coming through my training would, would just look at me and roll their eyes. And a lot of them also were Christians who were like, oh, I can't do that. That's, that's against my religion. And they didn't really know what they were talking about, but I respected them. I was like, okay, okay, so we're not going to talk about yoga anymore. We're not going to talk about any of these as spiritual development or whatever. We'll just strip all that stuff out. And what I'm going to do is just use English language and very practical names. And I'm going to describe what these skills will do for you to make you a better warrior, a better leader, to, you know, pre-resilient, to basically make you more survivable, right? And when I did that, I called it taking the foo out of the Kung Fu. (laughs) When I did that, (laughs) they just lapped it up. They're like, this is great. You know, so for instance, I started teaching you know, box breathing back in 2006. If you Google box breathing, you'll find my name all over it. And I wish I could have trademarked it, but you know, that'd be kind of silly to trademark breathing, but nobody was teaching it back then. And now, you know, everyone's talking about it. Even Brene Brown references in her book and she, she doesn't give me credit. Oh, she should. So that's an example. Box breathing though, for me is not just one practice. It's a series of like six or seven practices all kind of wrapped into one, uh, one practice. Same thing with like the asana, the asana. Most people who think of yoga, they, they think of a yoga studio with spend, you know, with Lululemon and stretchy bendy. That is simply the exercise that the yogis did to prepare themselves for the deeper work of 
of concentration, meditation, visualization, et cetera. So I call it exercise. I call it integrated movement. And I developed a bunch of drills that took some of these asanas that were really valuable, especially as they related to spinal health, opening up the spine, uh, working with the energy body, you know, the chakra systems. And I started to develop these in a whole practice that I called Koro Yoga, but I didn't call it that until later. I just said, this is integrated movement practice. And it had elements of, of traditional yoga asana. And all of the practices had breathing and imagery work and meditation with movement. And so you see things from Qigong, you see things from Tai Chi, you see things from CrossFit, and you see things from yoga asana in there, all of which can be done, you know, in your bathrobe, right next, you know, beside your bed or, you know, drive up to a park and there's your studio right there. And that, I started teaching that to the SEALs. And then I developed all of these tools and processes into what became Unbeatable Mind, a whole holistic system for optimizing and evolving yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually. And that became the five mountains of development. So over time, I, as I started to teach these things in this very kind of westernized way, it turned into an entire system called Unbeatable Mind. And that's where these books and, and stuff came out of because I was like, the system was having an extraordinary effect on people. Like the Navy SEALs, for instance, when 90% of the Navy SEALs and special operator, other special operators who trained with me and did, you know, adopted these tools and methods, 90% of them get through Navy SEAL training. Most people know by now that the average n hardcore guy who goes to try to become a Navy SEAL, 85% of them fail. The 85% drop rate. Well, 90% of our fleets were getting through training. So there's something about this that was really, really uh, powerful to the uh, point that now the Navy SEALs have adopted these tools and are starting to teach them at BUDS, which is pretty cool. I lost uh, sight of the original question, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I went down a pretty deep rabbit hole there. <laughs> Which I love. Box breathing, for those who don't know what it is, can you share a little bit about why oh, yeah. we do it? That's I mean, right. I've been doing it for about a decade. I do it every day. I even, like, I habitually, while we're talking, I do it as a way to calm my mind when I'm listening. So what is it? Why do we do it? What are the benefits of it? Yeah. First, I did remember the original question. It was about the courage, Wolf. So let me finish that and I'll yes. relate it to box breathing. So when I was trying to teach these SEALs some of the mental skills, especially those that come from like positive psychology and also shadow work, right? Like shadow work is really powerful, but one of the reasons that talk therapy often doesn't work is because it keeps the attention on the negative. And that which you give attention to actually grows in energy. And so I use that story of, you know, the, the Native American elder talking to the grandkids saying that there's two wolves in you vying for your attention, the wolf of fear lives in your head and the wolf of courage lives in your heart and they're always fighting. And then one of the kids says, well, which one wins? And the, and the elder says, well, whichever one you feed the most. So I have a, you know, a, a section in my book saying, you know, got to starve the fear wolf and feed the courage wolf. And you starve fear by just not giving it attention. You ignore fear. Now, I don't mean that like if someone in front of you carrying a hatchet, you're just going to ignore the situation. What I mean is Things that you fear, like the coulda, shoulda, wouldas, the can'ts and the won'ts, you know, that I'm not good enough, don't give it energy. What you want to do is give energy to the opposite, like to start to move toward the opposite of that and talk to yourself positively about doing that. You stake your claim. I used to say fake it till you make it. You stake it till you make it. Stake your claim that you can do that. You will do that. You are that. And just keep giving attention to that and keep moving closer and closer, edging closer and closer until suddenly you are that and you've done that and you know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that fear is, was a false evidence or a false expectation that appeared real to you. So feeding the courage wolf is a way to develop a positive mindset. And we know from kinesiology and like Dr. David Hawkins' work that negative energy is very, very crippling, right, to the nervous system and to your overall well-being. And on the whole mind-body connection, we know that a little bit, our science community and, and Western Ayurvedic and, and Chinese medicine, you know, we're all about this. Like if you are talking negatively yourself, or if you think negatively about yourself, you've got a bad self-image, then you are quite literally hurting yourself. Your energy level is going to be stuck in a lower level of vibrational quality. That vibrational quality is going to be either attract or allow disease or, you know, disemblement to occur within your body, right? It's not going to go well over the long term. Whereas positive energy and, and constantly 
moving yourself toward positive energy, starting with courage, right? Courage is the gateway to the higher stages of positive thought, which would be like acceptance and forgiveness and love, universal love, those types of things. It takes courage to step out of anxiety and fear and shame and guilt and jealousy and greed to go into acceptance and forgiveness and the higher levels. So, so courage is the doorway. So always feeding the courage wolf. Anytime you feel negative energy or you're engaged in a conversation that's negative, like gossip or something, you just say, no, I'm not going to do this. And you just step away. You mentally step away or you physically remove yourself and you feed the courage wolf with positive dialogue. Now, this is a form of mental training, but it, it requires that you're also physiological in control of your body. This is where box breathing comes in. One of the reasons, probably the main reason I should say that a lot of people fail or have difficulty with meditation, especially if they start with mindfulness, is that their body is in a state of hyperarousal from all the you know, crush of commitments and, and all the content and social media and constant distraction that has been trained into us as human beings. So when I try to teach meditation to my clients, especially the Navy SEALs early on, they were just agitated all over the place. They just couldn't sit still. They, they were distracted. Their eyes are opening. They're all heads bottoming around. They had that kind of monkey mind. So I thought to myself, and I went back into my research and talked to my teachers on the yoga side, and they said, you know, it makes sense because that type of training in the ancient days, like the Zen master would say, okay, you're not ready for that. So go wax on, wax off, go paint the fence, right? Go do the preparatory work to get your body in shape and to get to bleed off all that stress. And then we'll move into the concentration phase and then we'll move into the mindfulness phase. So box breathing is a very simple practice of controlled nostril breathing, where you're breathing deeply into your nose to a count of five, and it can be four or three, but you know, generally I say five, and then you're holding your breath for a count of five, and then you're exhaling for a count of five, and you're holding your breath for a count of five, and it's very simple. There are other breath patterns. You know, people will say that the five, uh, seven, eight breath pattern is more common. Sure, but this is a practice meant to be foundational for also concentration, mindfulness, and visualization training, and the five by five by five by five pattern is very, very balanced and stable. So it leads to a very, very calm, clear, balanced, stable psychology, which is perfect for leadership, especially under stress. Physiologically, what's happening, the, the inhale through the nostrils does a couple of things. One, it slows the air down. It breaks it into the two channels, which stimulate the energy systems called nadis, left, right. The right nadi stimulates the left hemisphere of your mind. The right nadi stimulates the right, left, left, right. Um, you know what I mean? Right stimulus, left, left stimulus, right. And Furthermore, you know, the, the hair gets all the, you know, toxins and, you know, particles out of the air. So you're not breathing that stuff. When you breathe through your mouth, you get a lot of toxins into your lungs. You're warming the breath up. So, or cooling it down. So it doesn't shock your system, which helps bring your system into balance. The most profound thing or two most profound things first is though, is it when you breathe through your nostrils, you release a little trace amount, some nitrous oxide, which helps your blood deliver the oxygen to your cells. You don't get that when you breathe through your mouth. And then probably the most important is when you breathe through your nose, it tends to lengthen and slow down the breath and you use your diaphragm more and you relax your belly. And so that whole movement is a massaging movement that massages that vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve, when massage, activates your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest. And it counteracts the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight. So if you've been trained or you happen to have trained yourself to breathe through your mouth through lack of awareness, and especially even when you're working out, then you are constantly in a state of sympathetic activation. And you can still perform fairly well, but you will have you know, compensatory things. So your hormones will be out of control. You have too much cortisol in your system. You'll tend to not sleep as well as you could. You'll be on alert, super alert. You'll probably drink too much coffee. You might have to you know, drink some alcohol or take some sedatives to go to sleep. All of these things are taking you in a very, very direct path out of balance and into a situation where you're going to be burned out or, you know, overweight or not performing optimally. So just the act of box breathing can bring your body's system back into homeostatic balance and bleed off all of that excess stress that you build up. And also what happens is when you're in this constant state of hyperarousal, which our society seems to like force on people, 
your parasympathetic pathway tends to atrophy. Research just came out in the last year, year and a half about this, that system atrophy, and you get stuck on, like all on in sympathetic mode. So can you imagine just the disaster this is for people, right? Box breathing gets you back physiologically in control. And guess what? Your brain is part of your body. So if your brain is back in physiological balance, then you're going to have the feeling of being in psychological control. And you're going to have less thoughts racing in your head. You're going to be really uh, capable of getting into that alpha, you know, high alpha, low beta state, which is optimal for deep work, for meditation, for visualization work. And so at that point, you can start to go deeper in, into the, the mental skills. And something that jumps out at me when you mention meditation there, a lot of, a lot of our meditation teachers will say, hey, don't adjust your breathing while you're meditating. Just breathe normally. Focus on your breath. I personally always do box breathing when I meditate because I just find the combination of I'm meditating with I'm box breathing right. and I replace counting numbers with my mantra. That's so right. I'm concentrating on my mantra and my mantra takes about five seconds. That's um, perfect. Nami, Padme, Hum. And I just repeat that. That's a brilliant practice. That's a stacked practice. So you're getting the arousal control. The attention control is the keeping your mind hooked on the mantra. Well, actually hooked on the breath and the mantra, but, but those become one, as you know it. That's right. It becomes yeah. a one thing. So that's a concentration practice. So the attention control, that's a skill. The other side of that skill is being able to hold your attention for long periods of time on just that. And then the third part of that skill is when your mind either splits attention or completely wanders off the reservation, you can notice it really quickly and snap it back, like lasso it back. So these skills, arousal control, attention control, concentration, and the bringing back are incredibly valuable, right? For productivity and also for just um, presence, the ability to stay with people. Like when you're in conversation, you're not like, oh, you know, checking your phone or, you know, thinking about the next thing or thinking about what you're going to say. But they are also what you've stumbled upon is that was all, that was the path, right? So the path, the way we teach it is first, you got to get your physical stuff in order, right? So that means dial in your exercise, dial in your nutrition, dial in your sleep, reduce your stress with box breathing and other stress management skills and get your physical structure and your basic psychological structure sound and sane. Now we're going to go into attention control and concentration to really gather up the power of your mind that you've flittered and wasted by sending it to those 60,000 or 100,000 thoughts a day. So most people have really lost a lot of their power or they certainly haven't gathered up their power into a very powerful laser beam like thought stream. So attention control and concentration using a mantra or imagery is extraordinarily important to like gather up all your power so you can direct it like a laser beam on your object of attention, whether it's a creative project or writing a book or launching a business or just, you know, your kids. But then after that, when you want to go to the deeper stages, by the way, we then can work with imagery too. Because once you have that powerful thought stream of energy, now we can turn that inward and activate imagery. And we use imagery to clear up our past and to create a powerful visual image of our future or a memory of our future that is desired. We call that the future me and unbeatable mind. So that imagery work is also a form or use of that mental power activated with imagery. But there's a point in time where I found that in order to go like next level stuff, you have to stop all that efforting. You have to stop controlling your breathing. You have to stop the mantra. You have to let everything settle down. It's not the place to start your meditative practice because you just will simply get nowhere. But once you've developed the stability and the concentration power like you of 10 years of practice, now it's time to stop the efforting, right? So, so a practice would look like this. Like, let's say you have a 20 minute practice or a, or a 30 or 40 minute practice. Keep, do the practice, the box breathing mantra for half of it, and then allow yourself to just stop everything. Like a flywheel, your mind will slowly spin down, the breathing will calm down, the, you just allow yourself to be breathed instead of taking conscious control of your breathing. And as your mind starts to spin down, because, you know, floodlight, lots of light, pinpoint popcorn light, it takes a long time. It's like a choppy ocean. It takes a long time for that to calm down. But when your mind is concentrated and it's like a laser beam, when you turn off the energy of the laser beam, 
all those other thoughts aren't there. It's just that one thing that needs to go away. And you have suddenly access to sacred silence. And in this sacred silence, you find what everyone's really looking for. You find the reason we're here. You find source. But you can't find it through efforting. You have to get past the efforting to surrender. The, the yogi's uh, tradition calls it stira, sukha. Stira is effort. Sukha is surrender. You don't start with surrender. You start with effort. So it's important. That's why Zen is important. But at, at some point, you got to stop the efforting and surrender. It's like the you got to do. It's like yin and yang. Another metaphor is like our Western culture is has got some incredibly valuable components to it, but it's fifty percent of the equation. It's all yang. It's all action biased. And because of that, we're doing a lot of damage to the environment and quite frankly, could destroy civilization if we don't rebalance with the yin, with the recovery and the receptivity and the creativity and the inclusiveness that a lot of the Eastern and indigenous cultures have. So we can train this in ourselves as leaders or as, um, you know, just for personal development through this non-efforting, just being okay with just being here. And you, the three ways that that experience of just being here now and present has been described, it's called Satcha Ananda, being, knowing, and bliss. But it's not knowing something, it's just knowingness. It's not being somebody, it's just beingness. And it's not blisses and happiness, it's the peace that passes all understanding. That's beautiful. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. That's the calm side of ourselves. I'm going to pivot directions yeah. on us here, Mark, is in principle eight, a mantra I've always had in my life, principle eight in way of the seal being think offense all of the time. Something I've always looked at it is I boil it down to one simple word. I've always used attack and it's just the way I tend to approach my life, mm -hmm. whether it's physical, whether it's sport, whether it's my work, whether it's becoming a podcaster, I just attack it with energy, vigor, and relentlessness as my way to move forward in whatever I do. And you had a big lesson when you were doing the SCARS training. Mm -hmm. that taught you, wait a second, I'm not practicing principle eight enough. I'm on the defensive too much. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us the lesson you learned and how you came up with this principle of be on the offense, which makes me yeah. think a little Cobra Kai, like Cobra Kai might have <laughs> right stole here. that one from you. But They did. I had a black belt when I went into the SEALs. I told you that. So I got my black belt, the traditional karate, you know, Okinawan style. You know, it's, it's like punch, block, kick, punch, kick, block, duck right? So it's offense, defense, offense, defense. And I was at Officer Canada School and I had a Christmas break, went home to see my family up in upstate New York. And I'm out at New Year's Eve at you know midnight with my brother. And I go to this bar, you know, and I'm, I'm 23 at the time. And, you know, I had a couple of drinks, but I wasn't like doing anything out of, you know, everyone else is crazy. And I was in Officer Canada School, but I had shaved head and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, the, the bartender, like, I'm a nice guy, right? And so I, I smiled at the bartender and I said, how are you? Nice to see you. Can I have a drink? And she just looked over to the corner and said, Jamie, we got another one. And I had, I'm like, that was a very strange thing to say. And out of the blue, this guy comes flying at me, jumps me from behind and starts to choke me out and literally blacks me out. My brother hadn't come in and pulled him off, like, I don't know what, and what would happen. And so I remember like being shamed by that and stunned. I'm like, I'm gonna be a Navy SEAL and I've got a black belt and I just got choked out by a guy like half my size. What the heck? And so months later, several months later, I go to Bud's Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL School. And literally the first week we started training in something called SCARS, Special Combat Aggressive Reactionary System. <laughs> Aggressive being the dominant word there, right? <laughs> the founder was a guy named Jerry Peterson, who was a whack job, but a brilliant guy, Vietnam vet who had been, had trained in Sansu Kung Fu for like 30 years, you know, and, or longer claims that he used it while he was in Vietnam, you know, to 
like destroy tons of enemy even with groups at a time. Like I think he was making a lot of that up, but the point was the system of San, anyone who knows martial arts, Sansu Kung Fu is was developed by the Chinese mafia. So it's like talk about extreme taking the fu out of the kung fu. There's no katas or dances or flowery stuff or uniforms. It's just like very scientific street fighting with economy of movement. And so they understood and the way Jerry taught it was offensive mindset and targets. Like you attack a target and you know exactly what's going to happen when you hit that target. You know, I know what's going to happen to the human body if I strike him in the throat or in the side of the neck or in the back of the neck. And there's three different systems that I attack there. If I strike him in the throat, I attack the, you know, the airway system and shut that down. If I attack him in the side of the neck, I attack the circular system and I, and I shut that down. If I attack him in the back of the neck, I get the electrical system with the spine. And so the system was taught as a way to like immediately take control of any fight by setting up your attacker to be completely under control. So your attacker might be throwing a haymaker or, or coming at you with a, a knife attack or even a weapon. And depending upon their body position, they're exposing a number of targets. And what you're going to do is you're going to select the most vulnerable target and you're going to understand that move, that target, it could do a lot of damage, but it's going to cause their body to react a certain way. It's going to either send them for like, if I hit you in the solar plexus or the groin, you're going to like literally lurch forward and extend your neck, exposing the second most vital target of the throat to me. And so I'm already setting up as I strike the, that solar plexus or the groin, I'm already setting up for that second most crucial target. So every fight was done within two to three moves. And so we started training this. And within like a week or two weeks, Jerry came to me and he's like, Mark, you got to unlearn that karate shit. I was like, geez, I just spent four years training this karate shit. What do you mean? How do I unlearn? He goes, it's going to get you killed because it's at least 50% defense. And he was right. And so, but it took a long time to untrain that. And then we did this 30 day instructor course later on when I was at SEAL Team 3, 30 days. 10 hours a day of fighting with Jerry nonstop to get a 300 hour instructor certification. And that's when I really finally got rid of all the karate and took on this, this fighting style. It was very extraordinary. But I learned that what he was really saying is with offensive mindset and taking out the defenses, anytime in your mind, psychologically, you put yourself on a defensive posture, you're putting yourself also in a victim posture where you're being acted on by somebody else where you are basically waiting to see what the cause and effect chain, you know, brings to you. Whereas the offensive mind says that you're always the actor, even if the action is no action. Wei Wu Wei means action, non-action. So we want to be able to act without any real actor. It's spontaneous action. And that's never defensive. It's always offensive. You're always in control. You're always in charge. You're, you're the lead agent. You're writing the script and you're acting in the play. And if, once you train yourself to do this, it's very similar. It brings in the aspects of mindfulness we were talking about earlier. It's like the way to do this is to develop mindfulness, but not passive mindfulness, active mindfulness, meaning where you're completely paying attention. You're mindfully aware, but you're not going to get acted on. You're not going to have someone take advantage of you, right? You're not going to let a negative situation come in and just passively observe it and say, oh, oh, everything's fine. Everything's in balance. This is the way the world is. This is just happening. What you say is, no, it's not the way my world is. It may be happening out there. It may be in that person's world for this to happen, but not my world. I am in control of my world and I get to choose the outcome of my world. That's what offensive mindset is. I love that. And something that ties to that, I often see with a lot of bright people is this, analysis paralysis, if you will. I've, I've always had a personal mantra, smart enough to understand how most things work, dumb enough to, to take the action, Mark. And yeah, you yeah, talk doubt, about the- Doubt is eliminated by action alone. That's yeah, the exactly. Term we well, that's where we're going. Because you talk about, you break inertia with decisive action. Right. What does that look like? Back to this doubt is eliminated through action alone. You can't ever have a perfect plan. Like we learned that in the seals and starting in buds, like you come up with an 80% solution as fast as possible, including a super messy one, 
but then you just move. But when you move toward that plan to execute that plan, you're just doing the smallest thing, the, you know, the smallest arc to success, the most valuable that you can decide on, but also the smallest piece of that most valuable thing. And then you just do that. Then you do that. You pause, breathe, assess the situation. This is where the OODA loop comes in. You observe, you see what happened. What were the results? What did the enemy do? What happened in the environment? What's changed in myself, my team? You assess the situation. You orient yourself to that. You make a new decision based upon what's the next most high priority target or, or action to take that has the smallest path to success where I can stop and assess. And then you take that action. That's called the OODA loop. A guy named Colonel John Boyd came up with that in the context of aerial to aerial combat. So we use the acronym pause, breathe, think, and act. But that think is the OODA loop. Observe, orient, decide, and then act. So I use also the term PABUDA. Pause, breathe, observe, orient, decide, and act. We love acronyms. They're fun. I love acronyms. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is about moving toward your objective, planning on the fly, but it's in the context of a good enough plan just to get started. So execute. And then the rest of the doubt or VUCA is eliminated as you move toward the target using this mindset of PABUDA. Doubts eliminated. And then tying to that, some where I'd love to end it with you as we approach the time limit, Mark, is we're going to talk a bit about principle four because it's one of the most important things I think people need to know. And we're talking the way of the seal, principle four, do today what others won't. So I want to share with you two of uh, my mantras and a bit of the way I live life because I think they really align with the 20X factor and embrace the suck. And then we can riff on it a little to help people take charge of this part of their life. So with the embrace the suck, I often write, be willing to suck long enough to be good, be consistently mm -hmm. good long enough to be great. And with the 20X model, I often suggest people build their get shit done muscle is I, what I call it by accomplishing diff difficult things in life, which is why I loved when I read yours, you tied it to physical things, which is usually what I do as well. Because I say, if you can do an Ironman, you mm -hmm. can figure out how to get to the C-suite at work. If you mm -hmm. can do an ultra marathon, you can figure out how to start your own business because you're teaching yourself how to get shit done that is harder than average. And recognizing that what's difficult for me is difficult for you, is difficult for the person that's listening to us right now and they have to start where they are with what's difficult for them today. How does that resonate with that chapter for you and do you want to touch a little on what you want to see for people to be able to do today what sure. others don't? Yeah, well, that saying came from the Smoke Jumpers Creed. We do today what others want so we can do tomorrow what others can't. And what it means is just do something a little bit more. Doesn't have to be much. It's a 1% rule. When it comes to your physical training, do 1% more. When it comes to your deep work, do 1% more. When it comes to the time and presence, your intention you're giving your family, do 1% more. And then you have that a compounding effect, like compound interest. You have compound energy. You have compound attention. You have compound productivity. Now, the other piece of that, so there's the, the day by day. We call it, say, one day, one lifetime. Every day is an opportunity to do more, be more, to be better and to do better. And at the end of that day, if it's going to be your last day in life on the planet, you're content, right? You've got everything you need. You've done everything you could do and you're content. Now you hope for another opportunity, but there's no regrets. This is a no regret life. Now to be a warrior and a true leader and to really bring out the best of 20 X yourself, then you also have to do something hard because 1% could be like, perceived as, oh, okay, I can do that. And it's not hard. You should also do hard, like for, you know, do something that requires you to embrace the suck until that becomes joyful. And so this is a process, your body, your mind will comply. You can train your mind to do anything you want it to do. And if you want your mind to look at hard work, hard exercise, hard obstacles as joyful and playful, then train it to experience those things as joyful and playful and also necessary and you can't live without them. Like I said, you will train my team, my community. I say, you will find your training to be as necessary as eating and sleeping and joyful, even the hard parts. So embracing the suck and doing today what other wants also means that you will 
using the crawl, walk, run principle, do hard things, things that scare you, things that you have a lot of resistance around, things that you even fear. And you're going to do these in a controlled environment. You're going to do them with a team and you'll do them with a training plan, coaching, right? And so you will have all the support you need. And what you'll find is that there's a lot of other people like you who recognize the power, the transformative power of doing hard things and doing them together with a team. And so this is why we developed our crucibles at SealFit, because I learned this in, in Navy SEAL Hellwake. Like most people don't think it's possible to be awake for six days straight, training around the clock, doing insane things. Not only was it possible, but I was deriving energy and motivation as the week went on during Hell Week. So we have a 50-hour version of that with SealFit called Kokoro. 50 hours, nonstop, physical, mental, emotional team training. It's extraordinary. We just finished up one last Sunday. We have a 24-hour version, a 12-hour version, and a six-hour version of that to give people a structured challenge. So I say, okay, start small. So every week, maybe on a Saturday, do something that's hard but not impossible. Like a three-hour, we call it a monster mash or you know, just a little suck fest, three or four-hour suck fest. Go out for a ruck with your weight vest on. You know, Do something hard. Once a month, do something like twice as hard as that. Once a quarter, like bring it. And then once every year, 18 months, you're going to do something that is like, holy shit, I'm doing that. You know, like, like a 24 hour suck fest or 50 hour or, you know, do something you know, really, really that scares you. And it doesn't have to be physical. Although when you can combine physical, mental, emotional, spiritual into a team event, you get this really powerful accelerant. It's like adding rocket fuel to your growth. You transcend and, and include your entire former version of yourself and you, you just skyrocket out of those things. And you never look back. You have this whole new perspective about what life is about, why you're here, and, and what's hard. So we say there's life before our 50-hour our event I mentioned is called Kokoro. There's life before Kokoro and life after. And afterward, it's just so much sweeter. I love it. That's a great way to end it. And we went decently wide in the topics there. Is yeah. there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure you get across to the listener as we wrap up? First of all, thanks so much for this conversation. Brilliant. I love your questions and I appreciate you reading the book beforehand. It's awesome. And it's great to meet you. And for all your listeners, like, don't think that because I'm a Navy SEAL that I'm talking about stuff that's beyond reach, right? And someone will say, where should I start? Like, what's the number one thing I do tomorrow? I say, box breathe. And your coach, Clint here, is doing it. You should be doing it. 20 minutes a day in your morning ritual, we call it winning in your mind before you step foot in the battlefield. Just start box breathing for 20 minutes and pin your mind to that breathing pattern or use a mantra. Om Mani Padme Om, Om Namah Shivaya. Feeling good, looking good, ought to be in Hollywood day by day in every way. I'm stronger and better. Hu ya hey. Those are some of mine. And you will just from that, you will have extraordinary transformation. Your body will come back into balance or feel much calmer. Your mind will be much sharper, much clearer. You'll have much clarity of thought and your heart will start to soften and it will give you great motivation to continue your training and practice and using Clint's other tools to sharpen your saw. And if you want to learn any more about our work, you can find me at markdivine.com or unbeatablemind.com or sealfit.com. Those are our three primary Okay, topics. so that's where they'll find you. We'll have all that in the show notes as well as a, a link to the book, The Way of the Seal. It was a great read highly recommend to all our listeners who are still with us at this uh, juncture of the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Enjoy Thank the rest you. of your day, Mark. Oh yeah. Appreciate you, brother. If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.